as we come now to the scripture, let me ask you please uh, to pray with me. Oh, Father, uh, I pray now as we come to your word that you would grant to us good attention, um, that we would find uh, great assurance and purpose in this passage, and uh, God, that you would use it to, um, to drive us closer uh, to you, our thoughts uh, and our affections and our living. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn please to 2 Corinthians and chapter 4. I want to begin reading with verse 1. I don't have it marked out that way in the bulletin, but I'll go through um, just the first part of verse 16. All right? So I'm going to begin in verse verse 1. We tackled... Went through six uh, last Sunday, so I trust that will be familiar uh, to you. I want to do a brief review, but, um, but then to take up uh, these verses beginning with verse 7. So, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 1. This is the word of the Lord. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart, but we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word, but by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, But Jesus Christ as Lord with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life In you, since we have the same spirit of faith according to what has been written, I believed and so I spoke. We also believe and so we also speak, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. For it is all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. So we do not lose hearts. Now, I began uh, this week, last, uh, last Sunday, with, with a question that fell out of verse 1, where Paul says he doesn't lose hearts. You can sort of see the bookends of we do not lose heart from, from uh, verse 1 and then this first part of verse 16. Uh, he'll continue on with that. We'll catch that later. But, but, but we began with this question, what keeps Paul from losing heart? 
What gives him confidence to continue on? We could also ask the question, what gives him hope? You know, the expression where there's life, there is hope. But even, I think, a more profound and helpful expression, where there's hope, there's life. And so Paul has hope. We want to know why. Given the life that he lived, he lived a life uh, of being persecuted, as we know, from outside the church, those who came after him, and his opposition, who, who put him in prison at times, who beat him at other times, who left him for dead at other times, who forced him out of town at other times. Uh, there's a group of people, in fact, who seemed to follow Paul around wherever he went, uh, harassing him and creating arguments and, and even riots in the streets where Paul was. And you wonder, okay, what kept you going, Paul? There was an occasion, you might remember, where a prophet even said, if, if you go to Jerusalem, they're going to bind you up and throw you in jail. And Paul essentially said, I know, but I'm going. And so, you know, what, what he, he, he had various uh, uh, persecutions from inside the church. The church in Corinth uh, wearied him, troubled him tremendously because of the slander that um, was spoken of him and, and he was um, dismissed by many. They thought him not to be an apostle. And so he, he had to deal with that in his, in, his, in his life, both emotionally and in his calling as an apostle. How do you deal with that? How do you keep going in the midst of slander? When people are telling lies about you and disparaging your reputation. Um, he, had, he, had, he had physical weaknesses. He was a man. He was a human being. And so these beatings took a toll on him, no doubt. The imprisonment took a toll on him, no doubt. The travel uh, took a toll on him, no doubt. The emotional strain of it all took a toll on him. We know they had a thorn in the flesh. Uh, that was painful to him. He, he may have had an eye ailment even, as he writes to the church in Galatia. Uh, and so physical weaknesses uh, were his as well. Spiritual weaknesses were his. Uh, he was a sinner just like we are. And so he talks about his, his, his battle, if you will, with pride and, and how God uh, deals with him uh, about not being conceited for all even the great revelations that he had. That'll come up in 2 Corinthians in chapter 12. But, but he, had, he had weaknesses uh, as well. Uh, he had discouragements that came his way. So, so the question is, how did Paul go on? In the midst of all this, he had an impossible task. He was to open the eyes of the spiritually blind. And so how could he ever, how could he ever do that? How could he take the gospel? How could he continue? How can he continue on in the midst of all that? What was, what was his hope? We resonate with that, we said. We resonate because we too have various callings in our lives uh, from from God, we share in the same gospel enterprise as Paul had, uh, the same calling, if you will, to take the gospel places, not in the same sense as an apostle would, a few perhaps in some missionary sense of being sent out, others living their lives in the midst of a community, sharing the gospel with others, beginning, uh, I suspect, with family and then outward. Uh, so, so how is it that we maintain uh, a hope in the midst of a world that doesn't necessarily want to hear this gospel, uh, this gospel uh, a message. Uh, and we have various callings. I hope you understand that, that God calls us in various spheres of, of life. And he defines that calling for us, what it's supposed to be. And he directs us in that calling. And we're supposed to take delight in that calling. That's what it means to, to follow him. And we're, I was praying this week, in fact, with, with some folks uh, praying from a, 
an old Anglican prayer called the Great Litany. Uh, it was uh, written in the 16th century. Um, uh, I pray with 16th century people all the time. Uh, and uh, and uh, there's one expression in this prayer. And it says, that it may please thee to inspire us in our several callings. You see, that's good language. Uh, to express the fact that God calls us to be men if you're male, to be women if you're female. That's a calling that we have, to be a man, to be a woman. Uh, in the midst of that calling, to, to, to together take dominion over the earth, to make it a fitting dwelling place, if you will, for God. That was the original intent of that, to cultivate the earth in such a way that it would be a fitting place for God to dwell among his people. Uh, some are called as as husbands and some are called as wives. That's a calling that God defines and God directs us in. We're to delight in the calling which he gives us if he gives us this calling to be husbands and wives as he does to most. Uh, uh, as, as parents, as fathers and mothers, that's a, a calling, you see, from God. He defines what that means. He, he directs us in that. We're to delight in being parents and being fathers and mothers to our uh, children. He he calls us to be citizens of, of a particular place, in a particular place and time of a country. And he calls us to be citizens. And again, he defines and he directs us in that. We're actually to delight in being citizens, if you will. And, um, and he calls us in, in various vocations, in various work, if you will, to call us to work in various places, to, 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 to love our neighbor by way of our work, to do good work in such a way that they're blessed. And that blessing comes through our work, but ultimately, you see, it comes from God to them. And so those are various callings we find ourselves ourselves in, all the way from this gospel enterprise through these various other callings. And so the question for us is, what gives us that hope? Talked about this last Sunday, all a review. So uh, uh, what gives us hope in the midst of all that, especially in the midst of a world that um, may not accept these callings, how God defines these callings, how God directs people in these callings. They may not delight in the callings that God defines and directs in the way that he does. And yet we're to live those out in God's, uh, God's way. And so how do, we, how do we have hope in the midst of a world that may not be in tune with us and God in the midst of, of this? What gives us hope uh, to really uh, continue on? What keeps us from, from, losing, from losing heart? Well, the answer that we noticed last Sunday is that Paul preached that Jesus was Lord. And he was the Lord, you see. And so he was the one who could open the eyes of the blind. He was the one who could give life to those who are spiritually dead. And so he could trust in Jesus. Jesus was indeed, is indeed the Lord over life and death. He has authority over people's hearts. And he has authority over us. And his authority over us extends to how he defines our life and how he directs our life. And you see that, that we are to yield to him in, in, in his authority. We're to receive it, if you will. And we're to follow him. We're to, we're to trust him. And so, as Paul says, we don't need to change the message. Now, there's a great temptation to change the message. 
especially in the culture in which Paul lived. I mean, you would think if he could only change the message in certain ways, then maybe he would be more accepted by the people in Corinth. Maybe he would be more accepted by his, his, his detractors. And, and maybe he wouldn't be run out of town so much. And maybe he wouldn't be persecuted as much. And, and so if he could change the message, you know, there were those called the Judaizers in Paul's day who, who wanted a, more of Moses and more of, of Old Testament law in the context of the life of the believer. And if only Paul had, had said, all right, uh, you have to follow these Old Testament uh, rituals and, and, and ceremonies. If only he would put that in and said, yeah, that's required to be a Christian, to be a follower of Jesus, to be saved. Uh, if only he had said that, he would have spared himself a lot of grief, it seems. But he knew he couldn't. Because Jesus is the Lord and only Jesus can open blind eyes and give life. And that only comes by way of the truth of the gospel. He couldn't change it else. He would utterly fail in his calling. In our day, uh, one of the criticisms that we receive as Christians is that this gospel message is so exclusive. We, we say that Jesus, believing in Jesus, who he is, what he did, is the only way of salvation. And we take, quite frankly, a lot of grief for that, uh, that message, uh, because people think it sounds arrogant of us, or that we're narrow-minded, or even, even bigoted, if you will. Why can't there be other ways than, than this one? And we would save ourselves some trouble, I suppose, if we changed it, but then we would lose it if we changed it, because... It was Jesus who said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And so if we change it, so, so what keeps us? What gives us hope? Well, the hope is that that's true. The hope is that that really brings salvation, believing that Jesus, that message. And so, so if we changed it, we'd lose, we'd lose everything. And, and we get criticized because we talk so much about sin and guilt, you know. Uh, because the, the message, the guts of the message of the gospel is forgiveness of sins. But you see, to receive forgiveness of sins means I must first believe that I'm a sinner. And I need forgiveness. And that my sin is such that it incurs the wrath of God against me and condemns me. And, and, and people want to say, well, I'm not that bad. And if we could change it, perhaps. I mean, uh, people in our culture seem to be willing to admit, for instance, rather than being sinners, that they're broken, that the world is broken, like that language. And it's not completely unbiblical, but the sense of being being broken. And so if you just fix me, then I'll be okay. I don't need forgiveness. Just, 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 just fix me. I mean, I grew up in this broken world, so no wonder I'm broken. I grew up in a dysfunctional family, so no wonder I'm, I'm, I'm broken. I, 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 all I really need is just different, a different family, and I'll be fine. You know, a different husband, or a different wife, or a different job, or a different major, or a different professor, or a different group of friends, or a different church. Give me something different to fix me and... And, and, and all will be well. And there's a sense in which Jesus does fix. 
but he works on sinners. And he begins by forgiveness. And so if we change the message, we lose everything because Jesus is not simply a fixer. He's a savior and a sanctifier. And so we can't change the message. Well, what's our hope? Our hope is in Jesus, the Lord, that he is powerful to really transform people's lives. And that transformation begins when they see the light of the glory of God in his face. That's our hope. Now, the other thing for Paul and for us is that that we know that Jesus is the Lord over circumstances. So even though persecution may come and difficulties may arise and we may have a sense of weakness and real weakness in our lives, that, that still Jesus is Lord over all of that. And none of that will keep us from fulfilling these various callings. In fact, I think what Paul's saying here is the reality of that weakness embraced by us ensures the fulfilling of our callings. That that weakness that we embrace, that is true if we embrace it, doesn't thwart these callings, but actually is necessary, actually enables them to come to fruition. Note how Paul puts it in verse 7. He says, but we have this treasure in jars of, in jars of clay. Um, what a fascinating uh, contrast, of course. Uh, jars of clay, uh, the clay jars, you, you know what that means. We don't have to go into ancient antiquity to talk about, about this. You, you get that already. These are, these are just simply common things in which something else is kept. And the thing that is kept in it is what is valuable, not, not the outside container. Right. In fact, in, in those days, people would often put valuable things in jars of clay. Why? Because if anybody was a thief coming into your house and they saw this jar of clay, they would go, that, that must not be anything valuable in that. Look at that ugly container. That's just a throwaway in our language container. So, so why would, well, there's nothing valuable in that. I remember, I don't know, Dad, if you remember this. I remember when I was a kid one time, at least, we were on vacation and came time at the end of the long drive to clean out the car. And uh, I looked at the Kleenex box. And there were just a few Kleenexes, tissues left in it. I thought I probably was the only time in my life I ever helped clean out the car. But anyway, uh, and after this, maybe I never got to do it again. But I took the Kleenex box and was about to throw it away. And my mom said, like she just turned white as a sheet. She said, no, don't throw out the Kleenex box. We go, well, little don't I know that that's where they kept the cash for the trip. And the Kleenex box, at least on that trip. And, uh, and so, you know, it was just a Kleenex box. It was a jar of clay, but inside it was something really valuable. These to us on that vacation. And what Paul is saying is, here's the reality of it. Here's the reality of it. The reality of it, in comparison, we're just jars of clay. We're just, as I learned it, my old King James Version, earthen vessels. That's all we are, you know, compared to something that we have, that we've been given, that's within us. There's a great treasure 
that's in us. And the great treasure that's in us as the people of God is the gospel. The great treasure that's in us as he describes it in in these opening verses that we considered last Sunday is the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who's the image of God. That's what we have within us. We have the glory of Christ who is the image of God in us. That's what's in these jars of clay. That's the point there, this great treasure, Jesus is the image of God. Uh, as, as, as the apostle John writes, uh, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. He's among us still because he's, he's here with us by his spirit. Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the father. I'm the, I'm the perfect representation, the author of Hebrews says, of, the, of God. In him all the fullness of deity dwells, this Jesus. And we have this treasure. We have this treasure in the gospel. He puts it like this in verse 6. He says, Let light shine out of darkness has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. (laughs) That's the treasure. That's what we have. And he says, all right. Now, how are you going to see that? Well, you're not going to see that if the jar that it's in is more glorious than the treasure that's within. If the, if the, if the, if the box that it's in is, is, is just simply glorious, is shining, you'll stop at the box. You'll never go in. But Paul says, trust me, we don't have that problem. And, and you need to get that, church. We need to understand that, people in Corinth. You need to understand that, that I don't have that problem, Paul says, and we don't have that problem because... Compared to it, we're just jars of clay. They're not supposed to stop with us. They're not, so, they're not supposed to be enamored with us. These super apostles that are preaching that look so great, don't be enamored with them. If you're enamored with them, you'll miss the truth. If you're trusting in them, you'll miss the truth. If you're impressed with them, you'll miss the truth. Because they're nothing. I'm nothing compared to this treasure. Get that. That's, that's what you're supposed to see. And so Paul says, in our weakness, all the time, what happens is that people see our weakness so that they can see the surpassing power of God. Paul knew that in his own life. When he wrote to them in, in his first letter that we have, 1 Corinthians and chapter, in chapter 2, verse 1, he, he, he writes to them like this and he says, remember, he, says, uh, so he doesn't say remember, but this is his point. He says, and I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come to you proclaiming the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. Now, that doesn't mean that Paul had bad grammar. It doesn't mean that he didn't make sense. And he didn't mean that it wasn't logical what he was saying. But what he was saying is, I didn't come in my own wisdom. I didn't come to impress you with this language. I wasn't thinking, how can I put this so that they'll go home and they'll say, Paul's really smart. He wasn't thinking, how can I put this so that when they go home, they'll say, I really want to get to know Paul. He said, that, that wasn't my intention. I didn't come with lofty speech or wisdom to try to put myself on display. He said, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ 
and him crucified. In other words, he's saying that was this was my my message. This is what my concern was, that you understood this. When you saw me, what you would think is Jesus Christ and him crucified. Somebody said, you see Paul today? I don't know, but you know, I had this thought. Jesus Christ was crucified. I don't know why I had that thought, but I had this thought. Well, it's because you saw Paul. And, 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 and Paul was so identified with his message that, that that's all he knew among you, all you knew among him. And he said, I was with you in weakness and fear and much trembling and my speech and my message were not in, in plausible or persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and power so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. You see, that's it. This gospel is powerful. Paul writes to the church in Rome, that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. To all those who believe. It's not simply the information. It is that. It's not just the wisdom of God. It is that. But it's also the power of God. You see, it needs power that we don't have, you and I. It needs power to change a person's life, as we talked about last Sunday. To open blind eyes. So that we'd never forget that the gospel can open blind eyes. Jesus gave sight to a man born blind and said, I'm the light of the world. Remember, and to, to show that it can give life to those who are spiritually dead, he raised Lazarus physically from the dead. And see, see, if I can do that, I can change people's hearts. That's the point of it, you see. And so Paul says, I don't want you to be thinking about me. I want you to be thinking about Jesus. Because that he is the power of God. And in chapter 1 of this first letter, again, this, this very familiar passage, verse 18. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it's, it's the power of God, you see. For it's written, I'll destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the wise man? Where is the, where is the, where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made, the, made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, their own wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews, folly to Gentiles. So Paul's going into Corinth knowing that naturally speaking, the Jews to whom he speaks are going to say, a crucified Messiah is no sign of salvation for us. He knows that's, that's what they're thinking. And he knows that that thinking is intertwined with Satan, even, and their own sinful natures. And he's thinking, how can I change that? And so he comes trembling. He comes with fear. I'm, I'm, I'm not going to be successful at all. They're going to run me out of town again. I, I mean, you know. And, and he says, I'm going to tell this to Greeks who love wisdom. And they're going to say, a crucified Messiah is nonsense. There's no way to line that out in any good philosophy. And Paul's going to say, but it's all I have. 
And, and how does he have any hope in the midst of that? Because he knows that Jesus is Lord. And so he knows that the Lord Jesus is there. And, and, and he knows the Lord Jesus can change people's hearts, can open their eyes, can change their hearts. And so that's his hope in the midst of all of this. And then verse 24. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. He's saying, but if, 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 if the Spirit works and he calls effectively, changing people's hearts, then Jews and Greeks will know the power of God and the wisdom of God. And that was his hope. But it was a good hope because he knew that Jesus is the Lord. And he knew his own life. Uh, when, when, he, when he writes this expression in verse 6, for God who said, let light shine out of darkness, he's, he's referencing, of course, Genesis. God is able to call things into being that aren't. And he's also referring to his own life. Because when he was on the road to Damascus, it was a big light that came. And it was the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus. And fascinatingly, ironically, it blinded these eyes. <laughs> At the same time, it opened his spiritual eyes to be able to see. And that, of course, was Paul's, Paul's hope. And so, you see, the reality of his weakness actually enhanced the message. The reality of his weakness enhanced or made successful even his message because there was no confusion. And now we have a tendency to think of Paul as strong and forceful and all of that. That wasn't their impression. They said, you know, he's, he's really, he's, he's very unimpressive. <laughs> his speech is actually rather weak. Uh, and he said, when you look at me after the beatings, when you look at me after the life I've lived, I'm not an impressive figure. So there's no confusing here at the end of the day. When I go to sleep at night, Paul would say, I don't think, well, I was great today. I mean, do you see how many people believed? Uh, he goes to bed at night, and before he hits his bed, he's on his knees, and he's saying, wow, Lord Jesus Look what you did today. This is amazing. His confidence is in the Lord. One commentator, Philip Hughes, puts it like this. Let me read this quote. He says, There could be no contrast more striking than that between the greatness of the divine glory, that is the treasure, and the frailty and unworthiness of the vessels in which it dwells and through which it is manifested to the world. Paul's detractors had contemptuously described his bodily appearance as weak and his speech as of no account, hoping therefore to discredit his authority. But it is one of the main purposes of this letter to show that this immense discrepancy between the treasure and the vessel serves simply to attest that human weakness presents no barrier to the purposes of God. Indeed, that God's power is made perfect in weakness, as the brilliance of the treasure is enhanced and magnified by comparison with a common container in which it is placed. And when I think of that, I think, what a relief. 
What a relief. You know? As we try to teach our children these things. What a relief. That it's not based on our persuasiveness and cleverness, but it's based upon the power and the wisdom of God at work. He's at work. He really is at work. And we can, we can trust him because he's the Lord. And, and as we live out our lives, you see, it's the Lord who is at work, the wisdom and the power of God. Then Paul goes on to give his credentials. Um, this is his resume, and, and it's not very impressive in a way, at least as he talks about it himself, because he talks about himself just like we would talk about ourselves, these very same kinds of things, uh, give or take the persecution in the same way that he had it. But notice verse 8, he says, we're afflicted, we're perplexed, verse 9, we're persecuted and, and, and struck down. Those, those, those categories, when he said he's afflicted in every way, saying, I'm a human being, I'm afflicted in every way, and, and even more so, if you will, for Jesus' sake, this, this expression afflicted means, I feel pressure. It means to be afflicted. Feel pressure. You know how you know you know pressure. You know what pressure feels like. Paul says, "I feel this uh, this pressure." He knew the pains of life, weariness and illness, and all of that. He knew the pressures spiritually of trying to live righteously. Trying to serve Jesus with a good heart, joyfully, just as we do. He knew pressures emotionally. The slander didn't feel good in his life, right? He, he, he knew that. He found himself at times discouraged. He, he knew that. He felt the pressure, the pressure of, of what to do now, where to go now, what to write now. You know, he, he was a man. God was at work in him clearly, but he was a man. He knew the pressures of life. He knew fear. He knew the pressure that came for serving in serving Jesus and, and perhaps being uh, persecuted in the midst of all that. So he knew this this kind of pressure, this kinds of discouragement. He knew pressure socially. He was not the most popular guy in town most of the time. But notice what he puts. He says, I'm afflicted in every way, but not crushed. I mean, it's, it's, by the way, it's the but nots that are important in these sentences. Everything looked like that the pressure would get to him. Everything looked like the pressure would back him into a corner. Everything would look like this pressure would kill him, would crush him, would keep him down. But, but, but it didn't. There was hope, you see. Even in the midst of the pressure. And I think in the context of my own life, yes, okay, I need that same hope in the midst of, of the pressures of the life that I feel. Notice he puts it like this. He says he's perplexed, which is my favorite of all of these. The ones I identify probably with the most. But he was bewildered. He didn't know what to do. Right? He was at a loss. Well, what should I do here? I mean, again, we, we see the end result of a lot of Paul's struggles as he writes these letters. But, but you've got to know in the midst of these, as these letters are brewing within him, as he's trying to find the word, right word, yes, inspired by the Holy Spirit, but still worked out in this miraculous, mysterious way in him. He's, he's, he's trying, to, trying to figure this out. He's trying to, where do I go next? Who do I talk to next? Who do I write to? Do I write them a letter or do I go visit them? Right? 
Do, do I send Titus with this? Do, do I leave here and go and try to find Titus to figure out what's going on? I mean, he, 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 would, he had those same kinds of things. You and I have these same kinds of things. We're bewildered at times. We're perplexed at times. How do I really show the love of Jesus in this situation? We've been in situations. We want to love people well, but we're bewildered. What would be the best expression of love to them? Would it be to, 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 to say a hard word? Right now, would it, would it be to say an easy word right now? Would it either to sort of overlook that right now or deal with that right now? Well, we know those things. We're bewildered. God, why does it look like other people are, are doing well and, 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 and I'm struggling and they're not, parenthetically. They are, by the way. You just don't know it, but they are too. So just drop that one. But, 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 but we were bewildered by that. You know, why, why do their lives look so good and mine? God, do you really hear my prayers? You know, why am I not married? Why am I married? Why am I not married to that person? Why am I married to this person? You know, all those kinds of things. Why am I? Why do my kids seem to be behaving like this, and other people's children seem to be ideal? I mean, we're bewildered by those, by those things. Why isn't the gospel progressing? Why doesn't this person believe? I, I've shared the faith with them. They, they look like they understand, but but what, we're bewildered in the midst of those, of those kinds of things. Paul said, "I'm perplexed. I'm, I'm bewildered, but I'm not driven to despair." In other words. He says, I, I feel like I'm at a loss, but I know that I'm really not at a loss. So what gives him hope in the midst of everything that looks like he's perplexed and he is perplexed and bewildered, persecuted, but, but not forsaken? You know, all of the, the world seems to be turned at times against Paul, this great opposition against him. And, and you would wonder, as even the church in Corinth wondered, you know, part of his problem is they looked at Paul's life and they said, well, I think you've been forsaken by God. I mean, who, well, why would God allow you to be persecuted the way you're being persecuted? Uh, why would he allow that? If, he, if you were really with him and he was really with you, why, why would this be happening in your life? And, uh, and it was true. Paul was persecuted, but he had hope. He knew that he wasn't forsaken by God, we feel, I think, at times, haven't we all prayed the psalmist's prayer? God, where are you? Why are you hiding your face from me right now? Why can't I see you? Why? And we feel forsaken, but deep down there's something that says we're not. And that's Paul's point. Forsaken, just persecuted, but not for struck down, that sense of having it's a sense of you're being struck down by the weapon of another a sniper if you will you've been struck down or a you a wrestler has come and thrown you to the mat that's the thing it's they've attacked and thrown you down and whether whether paul felt that from satan whether he felt that from others uh whether he felt that just in the the, the opposition to his ministry always being put down always being cast out uh how he he felt that and it looked like it would destroy him, but it didn't destroy him. He got up and kept going on. Uh, there's a wonderful account. I think I have time for this. A wonderful account uh, in Luke, uh, I mean, it's sort of Acts somewhere. Acts, uh, uh, maybe I can't find it. I'm sorry, I missed it. It's somewhere. It's in Acts. It's on the right-hand page, bottom up to the left-hand column of the... Uh, of the other page, this wonderful attack, wonderful attack, this attack on Paul. And, uh, and, and yet, even in the midst of this, this attack, he gets up and, and he goes on. They leave him literally 
for dead. Here it is, Acts 14, uh, verse 19. Bottom of the right-hand page, told you. Uh, But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, uh, supposing that he was dead. But when the disciples gathered around him, he rose up and entered the city. And on the next day, he went out with Barnabas to Derbe. And when they had preached the gospel to that city, he made many disciples. Uh, They returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and, and and saying that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. How subtle is that description? When they beat him up, they left him for dead. And then the disciples come out. We don't know what they did, but the disciples came out and he got up and he went on. And he said, oh, by the way, I've had this message. Uh, you'll experience a lot of tribulations. Trust me, right? He was struck down, but not destroyed. He had hope always in the midst of all of this. And that's just simply true. And that's Paul's proof. He says, listen, we're, we're the jars of clay. We're easily broken. But that's all right. Because even in the weakness, the power of God is manifested. Because look at my life and look at yours. Even in the midst of pressure, somehow we're not crushed. We're still here. I mean, one of the great things about Sunday worship, routinely, regularly, is to show up so that we know you haven't been crushed. You haven't been destroyed. You haven't been forsaken. Oh, they're here. This is great. Right? Because we know the lives that we live. And so Paul says, this is still, it's an amazing encouragement to all of us to share life together, to know what we go through, to know the difficulties of life, the culture in which we live, the families which, which we live in, and, 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 and the work that we have, and all of that, and still show up together. And there's this great relief every Sunday. They know they're not forsaken. They're not crushed, right? They're not at a loss. They really do this hope that we have. And Paul says we have this hope. Notice verse verse 10. And, And these verses I'm about to read are, to me, some of the most profound sentences in all of the scripture to the point that when I read them, my soul is just simply quieted. Uh, I'll say something about them, but my sense is I'm going to say more than I know. All right? I'll say things that make sense, but I'm not sure yet, even at my advanced age, I'm not sure yet that I understand exactly what they mean. Verse 10, he said, we're always carrying in the body the death of, Literally, I think better, the dying of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we, live, for we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. Now, there's a tendency always, at least for preachers, and even I think as we read the Bible, to take every passage of Scripture and apply it personally and to everyone. But I want to begin, and I'm going to do this very quickly, but I want to begin with just thinking this through through Paul's life first. 
Because there's a sense of uniqueness in him that we have to admit. He was this apostle. He was called to be an apostle to the Gentiles, this first apostle going out with the word. And, and he was called to, to write scripture infallibly. Uh, and, and so his calling seems different. I suppose other than Jesus, there's no one more important in the life of the church than Paul, maybe in the world, to the life than, than Paul in terms of what we learn from him and how God used him and all of that. And so I think as I, as I read this through his life, I, I can see it sometimes more clearly than I can see it in the context of my own life. Um, he says he's always, they, his people, but I think he's speaking primarily about himself, always carrying in his body the dying of Jesus. You know, Jesus died on the cross and there was a process of dying. And it didn't just begin on the cross, but there was a dying always in the course of his life, the humiliation that he experienced. Sort of a dying and, and, and then to the cross, of course, as he, as he died. And, and Paul isn't saying that he's, he's dying in the same way that Jesus died, that is to atone for sins. But there's, there's a close, indescribable, close union that Paul feels, I would say, knows, I would say, between him and Jesus. There's a, there's a closeness there. He so identifies with Jesus that in his work, in his ministry, in his calling, he sees himself as one who is for the sake of Jesus dying. And that's why Jesus, I mean, Paul talks about sharing in the fellowship of the sufferings of Jesus. Right? There's such an identity that when Paul is suffering for the sake of the gospel, for him, those are the sufferings of Jesus. To make sense, it probably doesn't make any more sense to you than it does to me. But but I think that's true. He, he so identifies that when he suffers for the sake of Jesus, those are the sufferings given to him by Jesus. The sufferings, as he would put it, because there's such an identity, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus. Verse eleven is its parallel. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake. See, so he's, he says, I'm dying. I'm giving my life for the sake of the gospel. I'm giving my life to bring the gospel to you. And in, in that giving, here's what happens. He says, so we're always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. He says, even in our weakness, even in our dying, even in the giving of ourselves, for the sake of the gospel, what is seen, what, what is experienced by us is real life. Jesus died, was resurrected. We're dying and the resurrected life of Jesus is being manifested in our bodies. Even as we give ourselves in love, even as we give ourselves for Jesus' sake. And I would say even as we die so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our body. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. Even though I may die bringing you this gospel, that through my dying and bringing you this gospel, <laughs> you'll see the love of Christ. You'll hear the gospel. And Jesus, who is Lord by his power, 
will bring life to you. Now, the way I think we can personalize this for all of us comes from the lips of Jesus. John chapter 12. Turn to this. John chapter 12. Verse 23. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Now, Jesus would apply that first to himself. This is what's going to happen on the cross. Like a seed, he's going to die. But in his death, life will come. A great harvest. Us, believers. But then he goes on to make it very personal to his disciples. Whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. So Jesus is saying that you must, like a seed, die. And the way that we die is to not love our lives, but rather hate our lives. Sorry, this is coming so late. I'll review it next week too. Give you a week to think about it. But, but this, this, this hating our lives, not loving our lives, is, is an idiom. It's, it's, it's a figure of speech. It's a way, it's a comparison. Uh, because what he's saying is that when we love our lives that cause us to lose it, It means that we've idolized our lives. We love them to such a degree that that, that we define our own life by our own wisdom and our own passions and our own desires and our own plans. And we direct our own lives by what we think, by what we think would make us happy and prosperous and successful and all of that. And, And that's where we find our delight. He says, when you idolize your life by loving your life, you're going to lose it. So in that sense, you must hate your life. You must yield your life. You must give your life over to Jesus, if you will. The Lord takes it. You must yield it to him. And then you'll really find life. And what comes from that death is real fruit. Fruit in your life. And you'll even find it in the lives of others. And Paul's final hope. Verse 13, since we have the same spirit of faith according to what has been written, I believed and so I spoke. We also believe and so we also speak, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. For it's all for your sake. I'll tell you, I wish I could say that. Don't you wish you could say that? Don't you wish you could say at the end of your life to others whom you loved, I live for your sake. For it's all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. And so when Paul saw people turn and give thanks to God, he never thought they should thank me. He thought, this is great. This is great. In my weakness, in my giving myself, in my dying every day, They saw Jesus. It's a great story in Judges about the life of Gideon. You might remember it. Uh, After various and sundry uh, occurrences, 
in Gideon's life, he was called to go fight the Midianites and he was, he was excited about that. And so he took 300, the 300 men that he had and, and they took up trumpets and they took up jars of clay. And in the jars of clay, they put, they put lamps, they put lights, they put torches, if you will. You couldn't see through the jars of clay. And then they went to fight and the trumpets blew and they smashed the clay jars see was this great light and the enemy was destroyed you get it in the course of our lives in our weakness in our dying for Jesus sake the light miraculously mysteriously amazingly will shine don't Don't worry about your weakness. Because the treasure that's in you will shine. Right? Let's pray, God. May this be true for us individually as a church, as we as we love our spouses, as we love our children, as we love our friends, as we share with our coworkers, as we as we live with our classmates, as we as we work in the community. I pray, God, that you would smash the jar, that the light may be seen, that no one would confuse us as the treasure, but rather the treasure being the gospel. And so, Father, I pray that you'd work in and through us in such a way that we would die to ourselves, not love our lives, but rather uh, that we would receive your calling, listen to it, hear it, heed it. Be humbled and follow the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, I pray that for me, for all of us, in every sphere of life, in every situation of life, in every relationship. And this I pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand for the benediction. You know, you always get up slowly for the benediction. But today you have a good excuse. That was heavy. Right? That was heavy. So take a deep breath. But ponder these things with me. Ponder these things. Receive this as God's benediction. Now to him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you blameless before his glorious presence and that with great joy. To only wise God and Savior Jesus Christ to be glory, dominion, majesty, and power both now and forever. And together let us sing.